Good morning and greetings in the name of Christ. It is indeed a blessing to be back home. <laughs> Some of you wonder, is that where we are? Is that where Pete and Joanna are? These days we really wonder where, where home is. And uh, I guess the next little while we're going to have to do some more establishing as to what's happening there. But we are glad to be here this morning and uh, fellowshipping with, with all of you here today. When we were here for an extended time last summer, fall, began a series on First Peter, and I'd like to just continue where I left off at that point. And according to my recording and so on, we are still in First Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 17 and want to go through verse 21. And I'd like to ask a question that I want for you to consider. How special is salvation to you? How special is it that you and I can be, that God provided redemption for us? I know there, there tend to be people, groups, even Christian groups, that focus a lot on the salvation message and basically that. And pl- place a lot of emphasis on being born again and that that is a very, very big part of their preaching and their teaching effort. Uh, they, they tend to miss, we believe, sometimes in some other areas, uh, things that should be the result of the salvation experience. But sometimes I wonder if, if in, in some of our circles we place a lot of effort and, and emphasis on the Christian life, and we should. Almost to the point that we somehow how should I say forget a little bit what the foundation is of all of this not that we ignore it not that we don't feel it is important but somehow as if it we've lost some, sometimes we lose some of the specialness of it is it maybe because it's become, we've become, I've assumed some things, it's become something we're used to. I don't know, I'm asking the questions. So far in First Peter, the Apostle Peter is led of the Holy Spirit to remind us that we have a wonderful hope through Christ's resurrection. And that the trials of our faith do count. And that Christ is in charge and that the trials of our faith are there for that purpose, that our faith should be tried so that it will bring glory to the Lord. Peter goes on to remind us that we have a fantastic salvation that we can know and experience that prophets and prophets dearly would have wanted to know what this salvation was all about. And angels 
look at it with amazement at what God has provided and yet they themselves cannot experience. And then in the more recent passage, 13 through 16, Peter then goes on, therefore, or wherefore, because of all this, be sober, hope to the end, be obedient, be holy. Peter continues on with his address, verse 17 through 21, I'd like to read those. And if you call on the Father who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead, and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. I'd like to look first of all at the redemption itself, and then at the response to the redemption. I've entitled the message, A Precious Redemption That Produces Reverence. Peter starts in verse 18 with this redemption. He says, for as much. He's really saying you're to pass your time, you're to live in a spirit of reverence. And then he says, why? And I like to look at the why first. He says, for as much, because, as you know, you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Now, first of all, from what were we redeemed? Peter says that in the last part of verse 18. You were not redeemed from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers. The old life the sinful life, the sin nature, that which we have received from Adam or through the fall of Adam, the fall of man, that traditional nature, we've received that by tradition. It's been passed on to us through the natural birth process. And Peter calls that, that's a vain conversation. It's a futile life that's been passed down to us by sin. It's an empty life. That includes all evil that people are involved in. That includes their practices, that includes their lifestyles, that includes their thinking, that includes their interests, that includes their attitudes, that includes everything that is part of being born a human being outside of Christ. And we have been redeemed. Christ has come and has provi provided a redemption from that futile, empty life that we received simply by being born. 
by being part of the human race. When Peter uses the word vain, futile, he's basically saying that type of a life was unsu- we could unsu- we were unsuccessful in trying to meet God's standard, in trying to change, improve our lot, our situation, make our make our standing with God and even with others better. We couldn't do anything to measure up to the purpose for which God had really made us. That was to honor Him. We can't. Anything that human beings do outside of Christ just doesn't cut it, just doesn't meet God's standard of acceptance. It won't work. You can't glorify God by living self. It doesn't work. And Peter calls it vain, empty. But Peter says, you've been redeemed from that. That means you've been freed from that. You have been bought out from that. The word redemption signifies that there has been a purchase process made. Some kind of a transaction took place. And so really, that means that we were slaves. If you are a Christian, then you were a slave and you have accepted the purchase price and have have been redeemed by that. You've allowed that to happen. Jesus came and paid the price so that people don't need to be slaves anymore. And this natural birth tradition that we have, this vain conversation that we've lived in, in an unconverted state, is a slavery state. It's interesting how people who are slaves think that they're free. They can do whatever they want, and they can have fun, and they can, you know, life just is good. They don't realize that they're, they're slaves. And they're trapped, they're caught, and they need something that they cannot provide themselves. But Jesus came and He has redeemed us. He paid what was necessary to be paid so that this slavery does not need to exist anymore. And Peter says that that payment was not with corruptible money as silver and gold. I understand that there there was a process that did happen has happened with slaves where an individual bought a slave and the slave assumed now I'm getting a new master 
And basically, once the demand was, the individual was purchased, the new owner, so to speak, said, you're free. You can go. Can you imagine how that person must have felt? To think that I have to adjust becoming, uh, become a slave to a new master and this individual says, no strings attached. You're free. You're a free man. Jesus came and did that. There were strings attached though. And those strings basically are our appreciation, our loyalty, our commitment then to Him. But here Peter says that you were bought not with corruptible money, things, little pieces of silver and gold with which slaves were bought and sold. And the people to which Peter was writing, very likely many of them were slaves. And so they knew what this was all about in a physical sense of being bought and sold for money or with money. He says we were not redeemed that way with corruptible money which has no long-term lasting value. But rather, he says, you and I were purchased with the blood of Christ. Verses 19 and 20. And he calls it precious. Now why is the blood of Christ precious? What makes the blood of Jesus different than yours? I'd like to give you seven points quickly. One, it has eternal value. Your blood, my blood, has basically is effective for us as long as we're here. It's done. The blood of the Lord Jesus, not just of his physical body, but the spiritual value of the blood of Christ has eternal value and consequences. It has an eternal value because of what it does for us. Why is the blood of Christ precious? Secondly, because God highly esteems it. God holds it in honor. And anything that God highly esteems has value. If God thinks that something is important, it is. And God considers the blood of Christ significant. He takes it over all the millions of gallons of blood that were shed in the Old Testament at altars. In fact, he considers the blood of Christ so special. In verse 21, he says, He raised him up from the, among the dead. And he gave him glory. Because of what Jesus did. Because of what Christ allowed with that happened to his blood that he gave his life. 
And the Bible tells us in Philippians 2 that God has raised him and has put him at a place far above everything else. That attaches an honor, a divine honor, a divine estimation to Christ, the work of Christ, the blood of Christ. And in Hebrews chapter 6, we already discussed this in Sunday school some time ago, that we don't trod, trod under the blood of Christ to desecrate it. Not so much physically, but spiritually. God puts a tremendous estimation, tremendous value on the blood of Christ. Thirdly, why is the blood of Christ so precious? Because the Bible says it is the blood of God. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul, speaking to the Ephesian church before his departure, says to these, its leaders, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers, to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. And so the blood of Christ isn't just human blood like yours and mine. It is the deity that became incarnate. I don't know if Christ's blood looked any different than yours or mine or if its physical components are any different than yours or mine. I doubt it because he was fully man. But it has the quality of having divinity in it. It did. In a way that yours and mine doesn't. Well, anything that includes God is precious. Why is the blood of Christ precious? Because it was sacrificial. Paul ta uh, Peter talks about with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. Christ was the only one qualified who could die for the sin of others because his blood was not tainted with, his, with its own sin. He could offer life to atone for others because his blood could do that. And the thing is, he said yes. It wasn't just that he could, but he did. That makes the blood precious. That makes the, the work of Christ's blood so precious. It was sac voluntarily sacrificial. Every goat, lamb, calf, whatever had ever been sacrificed, uh, I doubt if any of them would have done it naturally, voluntarily. That wouldn't be normal.
And all the people in the world could have done what Christ did and it still wouldn't work because our blood was tainted with sin. Christ wasn't. Christ could and Christ did. That's what makes the blood of Christ precious. If something is precious, it is dear, it is costly. It is something that you treasure. Fifthly, why is the blood of Christ precious? Because it is effective. It's the only thing that could work. Our Sunday school lesson talked about a better covenant. It's the only thing that could work. The old covenant wasn't as effective. The blood of animals wasn't as effective. Your blood and my blood wouldn't have been effective. But the blood of Christ is. It accomplishes what no one else, nothing else, no other blood could do. The only remedy. The only remedy. To get out of this vain conversation received from tradition from your fathers. It's the only way. The only cure for this spiritual cancer. The only cure. We sing the song, What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only, only, That's why we've got to treat blood, Christ's blood, the way we should. Why is the blood of Christ so precious? Because it was designated. Sixthly. In verse 20, who before, verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Atonement is not some afterthought with God when somehow the fall of man got caught God by surprise. Man's sin and bondage didn't take him by surprise. God, who knows all things, saw that this, was, this would happen. By giving man free choice of the free will, this would happen. And man would fall into evil. And bring the whole human race into it. But God had a remedy. And the other New Testament scriptures refer to that remedy was already, was already in the making, so to speak, before the world was before God created the world. That was already in the heart of God. And so this wasn't just some last minute God attempt to try to do something for man. Desperate. Some desperate rescue effort. To somehow either be a hero or to somehow provide what had to be done. 
This was a long-term plan with God. And I share with Brother Dennis when he says, why didn't Jesus just come right after Genesis 3.15 and do it? I don't know all that. But God definitely did lead the people through a long school process. And hopefully, we at least can look back and be thankful and appreciate even more. Sometimes, sometimes we appreciate something more when there's been a struggle to, to see it happen. That there isn't an, an instant cure. Maybe it's that. I don't know. I'm not sure. But anyway, Christ was designated. That makes his blood precious. That makes it real, real special. And lastly, what makes the blood of Christ so special? Especially to us who are post-Calvary. It says, verse 20, who verily was, bef- was foreordained before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in these last times for you. You and I can in a special way realize this which Old Testament saints could not. Yes, they looked forward to something happening in hope and have maybe maybe had some vague ideas of how this would all take place as they went through sacrifice after sacrifice. How much these saints all understood, I don't know. But you and I have the privilege of having seen Christ spiritually in a way and having realized the effective blood in a way that people before Calvary did not. And so if anybody should be thankful for the blood of Christ, it should be those who live in our era today. Because we know, we know in a way that nobody else did know before. Children, I want you to imagine something. What would it be like if you were all of a sudden in a place where it was very dangerous and you were going to get hurt and maybe not even be able to live and somebody came and helped you out? Maybe it was... I don't want to make things scary, but let's say let's say you were in a building that was burning and somebody came and rescued you. Or you were in the water and you couldn't swim and somebody came and rescued you. Or you were in a car and you were trapped and you would not there was no no way you couldn't help you and somebody came and got you out of a, a car in which you were trapped and couldn't get out. Wouldn't you be very, very thankful to such a person? That that person saved you, that that person rescued you, 
that that person risked his own life to help you out. I'm sure. I'm sure. I've never been in a situation like that and I hope you haven't either. But there have been people that have been in very dangerous places and they were about to die if they would be and stay in that place and somebody came and risked their own life to save them. And I can only imagine that the person that was then saved was always thankful for the rescuer. Always. Always. What would it have been like if you had been a slave and you had been badly treated by your master? Your master would beat you, make you work very hard, not give you good food to eat, and you'd have to work long and hard and cruel. And then somebody came and says, you know, I want to buy that slave. I want to buy you. And then would let you go free. And you wouldn't have to be a slave anymore. What would you do? You would probably be very thankful to the man that bought you. You'd say, I'm going to work for you forever. In fact, in the Bible, there was a place where a slave could say that. If a slave had a very good master and the slave loved his master, he loved his master's family, he loved what the master had given him, how the master treated him, and he, he, the slave would say to his master, you know, I want to stay with you forever. I want to always be with you. Because my family is here. I don't want to go free. I would rather just be a slave. Because I can be with you. I can be with my family. I can... And what the master would say, okay, if that's how you want to do it, then the master would take and drill a hole in the man's ear, somewhere in his ear. And that would show to everyone that this is a slave who wants to be a slave because he loves his master. And children, that's what it was like. That is what it is like when a person becomes a Christian. He wants to serve the one who saved him. And he doesn't even mind if it looks like it. Yes, Jesus doesn't make us drill holes in our ears. But, I want to do what Jesus wants me to do because I love him because of what he did. Because he saved me from a place where I was going to die in sin. He saved me out of that. And when you see that, and when we see that, and appreciate that, we love Jesus and we want to follow Him.
Now after church you come see me, okay? So, brothers, sisters, dear ones, friends, neighbors, those, the rest of us that are here, how do we respond? How do we respond to such a precious blood? So what? I don't think so. Those of us who have ever been in a situation where there was only one remedy really appreciate that remedy. And we work to maintain that remedy situation. We do. Peter is addressing these saints here, these Christians, and he says, there's two things in this passage, among others, there's two ways in which God's people should respond to this precious redemption. Verse 17, And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons, judgeth according to every man's work, past the time of your sojourning here in fear. The first response is an ordered behavior. Peter says, since you call on the Father as a Father, since you consider it a privilege and take the privilege of calling God your Father, you call on Him as a Father, and that's the wonderful thing, when God is your Father, when you call on Him, God gives you His full attention. Just like a parent does to a child. A parent will, can hear a child crying and will, will not make much about it until it is his or her child. They will hear that. They will notice that. Because there is a parent-child relationship. And so it is also with God as Father and any of us that are His children. When we call, when we cry, God does give us attention. There is compassionate hearing. If you call on the Father, and then God then Peter says, and this Father is impartial. He doesn't receive anyone's face, is basically what it says he does without a respect of person judges according to every man's work. He doesn't go he doesn't base his judgment on outward appearance, wealth, culture, language, social position, family background, education, beauty or lack of it, intellect, skill, none of these things. God does not base his judgment on those on that, that those criteria. He doesn't appraise man's character or man's worthiness on that. Like it says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, The Lord looketh on the heart, not on the outward appearance. God checks the inward heart, not the mask that covers the face. God looks at the real. And He doesn't so much look at it critically to see if He can find flaw or fault or defect because all of us have them. But rather, 
He is looking for an honest appraisal so he can sanction and approve the good that he does find in his children. Just like parents. When parents approve their children and commend their children, it's not that their children are perfect, but, they see, but parents see the good quality that they are commending in their child. Just recently somebody told me, aha, you're a grandpa. And I says, oh, why? Because he says, you call your grandchildren angels. Nobody else does. God seeks approval and he looks at the real in his children. Not at the put on that we are tempted to have. But then Peter says, God who is impartial, and he is your father, as you realize that, because he is those things, conduct your behavior past the time of your sojourning. Conduct your pilgrimage here. You're foreigners, you're sojourners. You don't have a settled place, but conduct it here. Go on with your life with a sense of fear. Not so much as being scared of God, no, but a sense of self-distrust. A sense of a tenderness of conscience. A sense of alertness against temptation. A sense of carefulness regarding becoming overconfident, high-minded, proud, all these kinds of things. A sense of alertness to the deceitfulness of your own heart. A sense of caution so that you and I will not want to offend or dishonor God in any way. A sense of awe. A sense of reverence. And Peter says, keep that. Keep that. Why? Because God is God. He's your Father. He's impartial. And He's redeemed you. So walk carefully. Just like someone who has been re- who would have been saved by somebody else from some disa- some life-threatening disaster, I'm sure that person will always treat his rescuer with a sense of appreciation and respect. Someone who has been, so to speak, cured of cancer is going to walk carefully and with appreciation for having received another chance. And Peter says, we who have been redeemed, we who have God as our Father, we who have God as an impartial judge, Walk carefully. The second thing, verse 21, our second response to this precious salvation is, who by him do believe in God, that is by Christ we believe in God, that raised him from up from the dead, gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. 
Our response is that we put our faith, our hope, bank it fully on that remedy of Jesus Christ. Completely. Because Jesus came, and we know that, we can have faith in God in a way that Old Testament saints could not. Our faith and hope can be in Him because we've realized the Savior and we've realized salvation. And so we bank, we put everything on that. And we can approach God with confidence and hope because of Christ's work and God's approval of it. If there's anything that you can that that you can anchor that's going to stand good, it's Christ's salvation because God has approved it. And so as we close this morning, I ask the question again, how special is redemption to me? How special is it? It's special to God because of He designed it. It's special to God because He poured out His love to us in Christ. It's special to God because of its effectiveness in the saints. It's special to God because it brings fellowship to Him as saints become, as sinners become saints. It's special to God because of the way in which he's glorified Christ for doing what he did. It's special to God because salvation brings him glory when saints becomes, when sinners do become saints. And so how special is redemption? How precious is the blood? The only way for your salvation. And how will you and I respond? Where it's suitable, let's kneel to pray. Our Father and our God in heaven, this morning we are thankful for the blood of Jesus. Father, we realize again that it is only the blood of Christ that has saved any of us from sin that has washed away any sin, all sin, that, has, that provides power to live the Christian life. It is only the blood of Christ in the heart of the believer that makes that individual acceptable with you in a way that you call him a son or a daughter. Father, it is the only remedy, the only acceptable way Father, and we thank you for the shed blood of Calvary. We thank you for what Jesus did voluntarily, sacrificially for us. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that you provided this for us because none of us have, could have come up with something anywhere like it. And Father, we thank you that we can be redeemed out of the slavery of sin from that vain conversation, that empty life, 
And Father, our response this morning is we want to walk with a sense of reverence and fear and in gratitude put our faith and hope solidly on you. Thank you for each one that is here this morning. And I pray for the needs that each of us have. I ask that you would meet them as only you can in Christ. Thank you for our visitors that are here. I pray you would bless each one of them. And Father, be there those among us here who are not born again, for whom the shed blood of Calvary is still a standing situation and has not been applied to their hearts. Father, I pray that today there would be people that would be saved and brought to the cross and that your blood could become effective in their lives. Father, we pray for the salvation of people today. Father, we pray that those who are your children would walk by faith, would walk in hope, and would walk in victory by the power of the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord, for what you have done. Thank you for what you wish to do in our lives. And we want to live for you. We want to glorify you. We pray for those of our number here that are not with us here today, traveling or elsewhere. Suit a special blessing of your presence with them, to them, wherever they may be. Direct our steps today and in the coming week. We ask in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.